Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, Go to AJC.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. Then we start getting into what we have now with individuals coming into the courtroom. I will say that is directly in response, Mr. Goff, to statements you made, which I find reprehensible. You have no idea what he was afraid of at that point in time, correct? Well, there's a man holding a shotgun out there. Right. So could have been afraid of being shot. And there was a man following him in a pickup truck. I was thinking of my son. It sounds weird, but that was the first that is the first thing that hit me. What did you do? I shot. Why? He he had my gun. He he struck me. It was obvious that he was uh that he was attacking me, that if he would have gotten the shotgun from me, then it was a this is a life or death situation. And I, I'm gonna have to, to stop him from doing this, so I shot. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There's really nothing like it when you hear the words, we have a verdict. It quickens your heart rate, heightens your senses, especially in a case like this one. It happened around 1.15 on Wednesday afternoon. The jury determining whether Travis McMichael, Greg McMichael, and Roddy Bryan were guilty of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery had reached its decision. I'd been wondering if maybe one or two of the jurors would sign on to the defense's case and cause a hung jury. We didn't want that. But when we were told there was a verdict, I knew that was no longer a possibility. There was no doubt the city of Brunswick was on edge. Even our editors back in Atlanta had sent out alerts to reporters telling them to be on call in case of demonstrations back home. Of course, that could only happen if Travis, Greg, and Roddy were found not guilty. All right, for sure. And surely, by now, you know that wasn't the case. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Madam Foreperson, I understand you have reached a verdict as to each defendant. We have. Please hand your verdict forms to the sheriff. The verdict forms are passed up to Judge Timothy Walmsley. He inspects them and looks satisfied they're in order. 
He then takes each defendant one by one. First verdict form I have is the state of Georgia versus Travis McMichael. Mr. McMichael, please stand. Travis rises. Standing next to him, his lawyer, Bob Rubin, puts his arm around Travis's shoulders. Jury verdict form. Count one, malice murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. I'm going to ask that whoever just made it out first be removed from the court, please. That was Marcus Arbery Sr. He had jumped up in joy. As he was being led out of the courtroom, he could be heard saying, it's been a long time coming. After Wamsley warns spectators about making no more outbursts, he continues reading. Count two, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count three, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. The count jury four. finds Travis guilty of all nine counts against him. Malice murder, four felony murders and their four underlying felonies, two aggravated assaults, one count of false imprisonment, and one count of criminal intent to commit false imprisonment. As the verdict is read, Travis displays no emotion. He has a vacant stare. As to Gregory McMichael. Now, it's Greg's turn. As a former cop and DA's investigator, he must have seen this in court many times. Except now, it's him. He rises. Jury verdict form. Count one, malice murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Greg McMichael, not guilty. Count two, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Greg McMichael, guilty. The jury finds Greg guilty of eight of the nine counts against him. Four felony murders, two aggravated assaults, and the two false imprisonment charges. The jury finds Roddy also not guilty of malice murder, but it finds him guilty of three of the four felony murder counts, one of the two aggravated assault counts, and the two false imprisonment counts. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This time, I'm joined by my AJC colleague, Shadi Abu Sayyid, who's been down here with me covering the trial from day one. I told you I thought the jury would come back on Wednesday. You did. It made sense. Thursday is Thanksgiving. Jurors had told the court they'd come back Friday and even Saturday if necessary. But who would want to do that? In all, the jury deliberated about 10 hours. And even though Greg and Roddy were convicted of felony murder, not malice murder like Travis, it really makes no difference. Under Georgia law, both carry the same sentence. Life in prison with the possibility of parole, but only after serving a minimum of 30 years behind bars. Greg is 65. Roddy is 52. Travis is 35. And in a pretrial motion, state prosecutors put the defendants on notice they may seek sentences of life in prison without the possibility of parole if the three men were convicted of murder. But that was quite a verdict. You heard the exuberant outbursts of emotion inside the courtroom. Outside, it's much, much louder. People were celebrating. Many were waiting outside for the verdict, and they got what they wanted. But let's see how we got there. After the state put up 23 witnesses and the defense seven, Closing arguments were held all of Monday and Tuesday morning. 
They were long for sure, but they were definitely interesting and powerful. Lead prosecutor Linda Donikoski gets the first word with the jury for closings. Wamsley gave the state three hours, and, as is allowed, Donikoski will go first. Then she will give her rebuttal after the defense's closings are finished. That's a huge advantage for the prosecution, but it's also their burden to try and prove the defendants are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. She starts out by saying what she said in her opening statement. This case is really about assumptions and driveway decisions. The state's position is all three of these defendants made assumptions. Made assumptions about what was going on that day, and they made their decision to attack Ahmaud Arbery in their driveways because he was a black man running down the street. There you go. Right off the bat, Donikoski injects race before the jury for the first time. It's been an obvious undercurrent throughout this entire trial, even though no evidence about it was presented. Now, it's out there. She reminds the jury that Travis and Greg didn't call 911, and she contends they didn't want to call 911 until they stopped Ahmad. So what's really going on here? You know what's really going on here? Mr. Aubrey was under attack. They committed four felonies against him. And those are the four felonies in the indictment. Then they shot and killed him, not because he was a threat to them, but because he wouldn't stop and talk to them. And they were going to make him, absolutely make him stop. We're going to point a shotgun at you. That'll make you stop. That should make you stop right here in your tracks because we want to talk to you. And what did he do? He still ran away. Still ran away. For five minutes, ran away. Donikoski says the state isn't endorsing what Ahmad had been doing, entering the English house under construction, but she says there is absolutely no evidence he was committing a felony like burglary. What was he doing? We can see it. Wandering around for a few minutes each time. Right? And then what would he do? He'd leave. On video, never took anything, never damaged anything. So ladies and gentlemen, you decide. Is he this giant burglar who just happened to never show up with a bag or any means to steal anything? All right? Or is he a looky-loo? Yeah, a looky-loo who's going in there at night. He shouldn't be doing that. I mean, we all know this, okay? But it's trespass. It's a misdemeanor. And on February 23rd, 2020, None of the defendants knew that he had been inside, in broad daylight, that location. And what did he do on the 23rd of February? Did the same thing he always did. Wandered around, wandered around, and then left and ran off down the street. But they didn't know that. They had no immediate knowledge of that. It wasn't in their presence. Danikoski reminds the jury what Travis and Greg later told investigators after they chased down Ahmad, and after Travis had killed him. Travis McMichael said he was pinned between the two trucks. Greg McMichael said he was trapped like a rat between the two trucks. The ultimate false imprisonment. Danikoski then tries to make the case for malice murder. Georgia law calls it committing a killing with an abandoned and malignant heart. And... Malice can be formed in an instant. It doesn't have to be premeditated. You just don't care. You just don't care. What you're doing, you want to do what you want to do. 
And boy, whoever you're doing it to had better be okay with it. I'm going to order you to stop and talk to me. And if you don't, I'm going to pull out a shotgun on you. And hey, you're still going to run away from me? Oh yeah, I'm going to come at you. I'm going to intercept you over here at the corner. How dare you turn on me? Bam! Malice, right there. Remember, Mr. Arbery had to have engaged in significant provocation. What did he do? What did Mr. Arbery do? He ran away for five minutes. He ran away from them. He ran away from them for five minutes. That's what he did. With his hands out at his sides, in those baggy shorts he had on, no weapon, no threats, no way to call for help, didn't even have a cell phone on him. Ran away from him for five minutes. She then tells jurors that Greg encouraged his son to take action after he saw Ahmad run by. And to show how everyone should be found guilty, she compares Greg, Travis, and Roddy to a championship-winning football team. Hey, Travis, get your shotgun. That guy is outside. Not, hey, Travis, I need to call 911. That guy is outside. Let's get our guns and let's jump in the truck. Encouraging. Advising. Cut him off, cut him off, cut him off. Is what Greg McBichael said. So that's what we've got. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you really want to think about this? Everybody gets a Super Bowl ring, right? The quarterback gets a Super Bowl ring. The guys in the field get the Super Bowl ring. The dude on the bench gets a Super Bowl ring, right? Everybody is involved. Everybody's responsible. That's what the law says. Donikoski admits to the jury she's worried about what the defense lawyers are about to say. You can't do that either. Three on one, two pickup trucks, two guns, unarmed. Mr. Arbery was unarmed. So what are you going to hear? I don't know what what they're going to say. They're good. They're good defense attorneys. They're going to get up here and I'm... The state is so worried that they're going to make it seem so reasonable that everything that Travis did and Greg did is just so reasonable. I'm just going to ask you to use your common sense and put your thinking caps on. But this is what I anticipate, what we anticipate they're going to say. The victim started it, or you're going to hear that he was the aggressor, okay, because he was running towards Travis McMichael, but he was running away from Mr. Bryan, who'd already tried to hit him with the pickup truck. And Greg McMichael said it. He was trapped like a rat. He knew there was nowhere else to go. Or they're going to tell you that, ladies and gentlemen, this is really about the front of the pickup truck. Forget everything else. It was all about the front of the pickup truck. Donikoski ends her initial closing argument this way. She says the three defendants had no justification to make a citizen's arrest. So where are we going to end up? This is where we're going to end up. Travis McMichael had probable cause to believe that Ahmad stole the stuff off the English boat in 2019 because his mother gave him some gossip about stuff being stolen. And he was escaping... Use your common sense. How do you escape from a crime on an unknown date in 2019 on February 23rd, 2020? I'm sure they'll explain it to you. But use your common sense. And remember, what do you think? You think all this was completely made up for trial? Especially given no one ever said it on February 23rd, 2020? 
Ladies and gentlemen, use your common sense. Put your critical thinking caps on. It's all the state can ask you to do. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the defense. This is Breakdown. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Now for the defense. First up, Jason Sheffield. Duty and responsibility and following the law will always be intertwined with heartache and tragedy. This case is about three things. It's about watching, it's about waiting, it's about believing. Sheffield has two goals. First, convince the jury that Travis and his dad were making a justified citizen's arrest on February 23, 2020. If the defense can't do that, their case is pretty much lost. And Sheffield also has to convince jurors that, if the citizen's arrest was justified, Travis acted in self-defense when he shot and killed Ahmad. Sheffield retraces Travis McMichael's career in the U.S. Coast Guard, where he knew what it takes to have probable cause. How he believed the best way to handle the situation was to de-escalate it. Sheffield reminds jurors of the prior times Ahmad was caught on the security video at Larry English's house under construction. There's the report that English had equipment stolen out of his boat. And there's the time Travis sees Ahmad at night on February the 11th, 2020. Travis McMichael has his own horrifying experience with a man that he is about to learn has just been involved in all this stuff with Larry English. He's been told some things by his mother and his father and other neighbors before this moment, but he's going to learn some things for himself on 2-11-20. We heard Travis testify about that last week, how he said he saw Ahmad reach for his pants as if he had a gun, how it scared him, and how he called 911. Remember, a felony has to be committed to justify a citizen making the arrest of someone who appears to be escaping the scene. The defense says Travis and Greg believed Ahmad committed a burglary, even though none of the security videos show him taking anything. For this reason, Sheffield lets the jury know, you don't have to take anything to commit a burglary. Nothing has to be broken. You just have to break the plane of the structure to constitute a burglary. Then 
you don't have to show that an actual theft had been committed. Nothing actually has to be stolen. You just have to enter with the intent to steal something. Where do we derive a person's intent to steal something from a house? Well, they certainly go into a house that isn't theirs, that contains valuables, and they do it at a time when they shouldn't be doing it and under circumstances that are very problematic, including running from other people who see you. Then Sheffield asks a question for the jury to ponder. What was Ahmad Arbery doing in Satilla Shores from October 2019 to February 2020? There is no evidence that Ahmad Arbery ever jogged or exercised in Satilla Shores. Not one friend, not one family member, not one eyewitness, even Rash going door to door, there is no evidence whatsoever that Satilla Shores was a place of exercise and jogging for Ahmad Arbery. He says it's telling that Ahmad returned to the English house on a sunny Sunday afternoon on February 23rd. This was just 12 days after he'd been run off after being confronted by Travis. It is unreasonable to think that he's going back there for some lawful purpose after being run out of there three times before. Well, we do know what Ahmad was doing was unlawful. It was likely trespassing, which he'd done several times before. But that's a misdemeanor, not a felony. On February 23rd, 2020, after his dad bursts into the house in a frenzy, Travis grabs his shotgun and walks outside. He testified he saw his neighbor, Matt Albenzi, pointing down the road in the direction Ahmad was running. Sheffield says what Albenzi did was important. It heightened Travis's level of suspicion. Then Sheffield counters what Donikoski had said, that Travis only relied on what his mom had told him about what was stolen out of Larry English's boat. You cannot act on the unsupported statements of others. The state has characterized that, which is an accurate statement of the law, as Travis's mom. Are you kidding? After all that we have seen, after all that he has experienced, after all the conversation that he's had, after all the videos that he's seen, after what he experienced himself, that, that he's just going off of what his mommy told him? Sheffield then hammers home his belief that Travis was justified to chase Ahmad down and detain him. This is what he carried with him when he left his driveway that day. <clears throat> Reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Facts and circumstances to warrant a prudent person, one taking care to understand the truth. In believing that the suspect has committed the offense of burglary. Travis believes he's committed the offense of burglary. Even so, Sheffield tells the jury, Making a citizen's arrest is not without risk. This is where the duty and responsibility in following the law becomes intertwined with heartache and tragedy. Because you do have the right to perform a citizen's arrest. You do have the right to have a firearm when you make an arrest. You do have the right to stop a person and to hold them and detain them for the police. And there is risk with that. And there are tragic consequences that can come from that. And we can all sit here right now and say what the state has said from the very beginning and what Travis himself recognizes. If 
if he had only stayed home that day, if he had just sat on the couch and fallen asleep with his kid that day, Travis told you it's not a day that doesn't go by that he doesn't think that exact same thing. I don't remember Travis ever saying that. I don't either. He sure must think it, though. I mean, he's behind bars because of it, and he killed a man. Like we keep saying, this case hinges on Georgia's old citizen's arrest law. So Sheffield tries to make the case for it. The law allows the citizens to make a citizen's arrest. And if doing so properly, it is the reason for the actions that follow. Here, you talk about an offense being committed in his presence or when his immediate knowledge. What could be more immediate than February 11th? What could be more immediate than seeing the videos of him in the house and talking with police officers and other people including hearing from Larry English through others, that he actually had stuff stolen from his property. An offense has been committed, and he knows about it. He's, he's seen everything other than the hand on the equipment that was stolen. If it's a felony and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, then you can arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion, probable cause. Travis said many, many times it was the totality of the circumstances. That's his Coast Guard brain. Sheffield also argues about the timing of a citizen's arrest. He says it doesn't have to be immediately after a crime is committed. Private citizen's warrant arrest must occur immediately after the perpetration of the offense or, in the case of felonies, during escape. Not every person is arrested at the moment they commit a crime. Not every person is arrested by police, because sometimes the police don't get there in time. But if they learn about the person and they have information about the person, escape can happen anytime. Escape can happen later. Doesn't have to happen right at the same time the crime is committed. There's no law that says that. There's no time limit imposed. The police would never be able to arrest anybody. And a citizen is in the same shoes as an officer when it comes to citizen's arrest. He tells the jury if Travis wanted to harm Ahmad, he could have done so at the start of the chase. He pulls out after his dad crammed into the front seat with the kid's seat there, and he follows. And he watches. And he pulls up next to this gentleman. No gun is raised. No violence is ensued. He doesn't get out of the car. He doesn't tackle him. He doesn't do anything. He does what a reasonably prudent person would do. He does what his training has taught him to do, to use leaps. And he says, hey, man, what's going on? Can, can you stop for a second, please? I just want to talk to you for a second. There is no violence. If Travis wanted violence against this man, if Travis wanted to hurt him or commit an aggravated assault or commit a false imprisonment, he could have done it right then and there. He doesn't. He talks to him. All three men are charged as parties to a crime. So Sheffield tells the jury Travis had no idea who Roddy was and why the black Chevy Silverado drove up all of a sudden in the first place. He has no clue who this black truck is. In terms of evidence, there is no evidence of any communication between these people, any cooperation between these two people, no help, no assistance, no encouraging, nothing. When Ahmad runs away again, Travis testified that his dad told him to go, go get him, down the street. But Travis said he instead drove around toward the intersection of Holmes Road and Satilla Drive, 
Well, Sheffield addresses that. If he wanted to go commit an aggravated assault, if he wanted to go do a false imprisonment, if he wanted to end the life of somebody, whether it's murder or felony murder, there's another chance. But he doesn't. He just watches. And then he says, I'm going to drive around. Travis testified that after he stopped his pickup on Holmes, Ahmad comes up the street running at him, away from Roddy's truck. But Ahmad turns back around when he sees Travis reach into the pickup for his shotgun. Then, of course, Ahmad returns once more, again running at Travis. We have seen that in the cell phone video too many times. Here, Sheffield tries to make the case for self-defense. The second time that Mr. Arbery comes down the street, Travis says he gets 30 to 40 feet from him. He's afraid that he will be on him in a matter of seconds. He is afraid that he will beat him with his fist or whatever weapon he might have. And he's scared. And so he's done what he thinks the law allows him to do, which is to try to de-escalate that approach by showing force. Showing force necessary to prevent Travis himself or his father from getting beaten and possibly killed. And so he raises the gun. And he does it to defend himself, to protect himself. Sheffield says you don't need to be facing someone with a gun or a knife to act in self-defense. An aggravated assault, by the way, is a felony that can be committed by the use of fists. The threat of the use of a dangerous object or weapon. The threat of it. The intent to use your fist to create serious bodily injury. Fists are that weapon. Sheffield says this was not what Travis wanted to happen. He never, ever, when he left his driveway that day, thought that things would end this way. Not ever. He reminds the jury that Travis testified if Ahmad wanted to turn and run away, he would have let him. And that Travis was thinking of his three-year-old son when Ahmad charged at him around the front of the truck. Sheffield plays the video of those final moments. Is there any question that Ahmad Arbery had his hands on this firearm. Any question at all. Travis, in his interview, told you, I, I was under shock, I was under stress, I, I, I don't know. If he had his hand on the gun, I think he did. I, th- I think he did, I think he had my shirt, I think he was punching me. Travis is in a state of disrepair. There is no question that Ahmad's hands are on this gun. Is there any question that Ahmad Arbery is assaulting Travis McMichael Right before that third shot, not one single bit of question. And that third shot goes off. And these two men end where they started, face to face, looking into each other's eyes. Never a word being spoken by Mr. Aubrey. And it is absolutely horrific and tragic that this has happened. And again, this is where the law is intertwined with heartache and tragedy. You are allowed to defend yourself. You are allowed to use force that is likely to cause death or serious bodily injury if you believe it's necessary. At that moment, Travis believed it was necessary. He also says this. If this was a case about wanting to murder a black jogger, if this was really a case about that, 
Travis would not have reacted the way he reacted. Sheffield ends with the defense's theme of duty and responsibility, how Travis felt that sense of duty on February 23, 2020, and how he felt it was his responsibility to take the stand and testify. As you sit here and think about what the law allows a citizen to do, it is going to take courage. It's going to take courage to set aside what you think and feel, what may be trying to penetrate you from other sources that you have tried to do your best to avoid, and to focus on the bare facts of this case that have been captured on photograph and on video that have been testified to in this courtroom. It will take courage. Sheffield reminds the jury that Travis spent nine years in the Coast Guard, sometimes rescuing boaters in troubled waters. Sheffield says Travis is now in such waters. He says he and his co-counsel Reuben have carried Travis out of those waters to the surface. Will you do as he has done in the past to others? Will you reach out your hand and extend it to Travis McMichael and pull him out of those waters? I think if you've heard anything that I've said, there's only one decision. He is not guilty on all charges. Thank you all for your attention. Next up for the defense is Laura Hope. She also must convince jurors that Greg was justified in getting his son to join in the chase after seeing Ahmad run past his house. She tells the jury there are really only two questions that need to be answered. Did Greg McMichael have reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion to believe that Ahmad Arbery had committed a burglary at 220 Satilla Drive? And did he have reasonable and probable grounds to believe that Ahmad Arbery was escaping or attempting to escape yet again on February 23rd? Hogue also addresses the indictment, which asks the jury to convict all three men of malice murder. She says, as to Greg, It requires the desire and the intent to kill, the deliberate intention to take the life of another human being. Where all of the circumstances of the killing show that an individual acted with an abandoned and malignant heart. The state will have to be asking you to find that Greg McMichael advised or encouraged Travis McMichael, his son, to take the life of Ahmaud Arbery because that's what he wanted to do. For no reason other than to see that young man die. And to see him die at the hands of his own son. And to do it right there in front of his eyes. And she addresses other counts in the indictment. If Greg McMichael was authorized by law to attempt to execute a citizen's arrest, to try to detain Ahmad Arbery for the police to come and do their job, to try to keep peace and safety within that neighborhood, then they were within the law to hold him there for the police. How else does one hold an individual who does not want to be arrested 
for the police. You have to contain him, not false imprison him, contain him. You have to possibly hold him at gunpoint without firing a shot, not an aggravated assault, but the use of a reasonable and measured amount of force to make him stay where he did not want to stay. Hogue also repeats a bit of what Sheffield said earlier, that it is reasonable to believe Ahmad had committed a burglary. And she says that Greg and Travis did not have to be certain Ahmad had done so. That means every single time Ahmad Arbery goes into that house, he is committing a burglary. But you hardly needed a jury instruction to tell you that. Coming into someone else's house at night where it's pitch dark repeatedly, even after you've been run off, into a place where an offshore boat is holding expensive equipment, the intruder comes in, and sometime after that intruder has left, your stuff is gone. Reasonable grounds of suspicion is nothing more than probable cause. And probable cause, as Mr. Sheffield and the court will tell you, are facts necessary to establish a probability, more likely than not. It's less than certainty, but it's more than mere suspicion. Hogue points out, when someone's making a valid citizen's arrest, they don't actually have to say the magic words, you're under arrest, or I'm making a citizen's arrest. And I suspect, in your minds, there would be no doubt that Ahmad Arbery would have known exactly why he was being chased. Because there can be little doubt as well that Ahmad Arbery knew exactly why the McMichaels were trying to detain him on February 23rd. Of course, she can't get into Ahmad's past scrapes with the law or his mental health issues, not specifically, but she does say this. The truth of life is that it's very complicated. A beautiful teenager with a broad smile in a crooked baseball cap can go astray. He can deteriorate and lose his way. And years later, he can end up creeping into a home that is not his own and running away instead of facing the consequences, acting erratically when approached, and making terrible, unexpected, illogical choices. But a mother's love doesn't fade from that beautiful boy in the ball cap to the young intruder. And sadly, no verdict can change the grief of that future not realized. The hope that he could have turned himself around. Because all we can guess about the young man 
is that his teenage years were full of promise, but his early 20s just led him in the wrong direction. Hogue also tells the jury that what's been presented as evidence bears no resemblance to what the state said in its opening statement. A 25-year-old who met a brutal death after being chased and killed by residents of a neighborhood who wanted nothing more than to murder him for having the audacity to jog in their neighborhood. Not a single piece of evidence that's been presented to you in this entire trial supports such a hateful and gruesome set of circumstances. Turning Ahmad Arbery into a victim after the choices that he made does not reflect the reality of what brought Ahmad Arbery to Satilla Shores in his khaki shorts with no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails. Hoag seems to be on quite a roll until she gets to Ahmad wearing no socks to cover his, quote, long, dirty toenails. I know the medical examiner said that about Ahmad's toenails. I'm guessing that Hoag said it to infer most joggers don't run without their socks on, and it's unlikely that serious joggers have long toenails. Still, it sure seems like she could have chosen a better way to say it. She'll later be criticized for it across many media platforms, in a big way. Hoag then says this about Ahmad. There was no legitimate reason for Ahmad Arbery to be plundering through Larry English's house those four nights, and again on the afternoon of February 23rd. Ahmad didn't live there, he didn't work there, he didn't have friends there, he didn't have a girlfriend there, he wasn't hanging out with a friend in that neighborhood who was a friend of a friend, he didn't jog through that neighborhood. He was a recurring nighttime intruder, and that is frightening and unsettling. Hoag says it was Ahmad who gave the impression he was reaching for a handgun on February the 11th, and he also ran away like the wind on February 23rd. I realize, probably more than any of you, what an incredibly unpopular thing that is to say. But in a courtroom, with Greg McMichael facing the charge of murder, somebody's got to say it. And believe me, I'm proud to be the one to say it. Not to cause harm, not to cause pain, but because the truth in this place is really all that matters. Be very clear. Be very clear. No one is saying that Ahmad Arbery deserved to die for whatever it was he was doing inside 220 Satilla Drive because that's not why he died. He died because for whatever inexplicable, illogical reason, instead of staying where he was, Whatever overwhelming reason he had to avoid being 
captured that day and arrested by the police. He chose to fight. Hogue ends her closing by telling jurors, If you find Greg had the right to execute a citizen's arrest, then not guilty is the only verdict you can return. And every single count in this indictment is life-changing for Greg McMichael. Your deliberations should be guided by the rule that the judge will give you. If in any way your minds are wavering, unsettled, unsatisfied, then that is a doubt of the law and you must acquit. You can't wake up in a couple of weeks from now and regret the decision you made because you can't take it back. The Constitution, our beautiful Constitution, demands no less than this certainty. The grandparents on golf carts in Satilla Shores, the kids on bikes in your neighborhood, the couples walking their dogs after dinner in our small town neighborhoods deserve no less. Greg McMichael is not a murderer. He's not guilty. This is Breakdown. There's a break, and when court reconvenes, Kevin Goff has another motion for a mistrial. Uh, protesters, uh, whether they were the Black Panther group or, or some other group, uh, were behind the barriers in front of the courthouse. There was a truck carrying a coffin with the names of the defendants on it. Um, at least one of these groups, I believe it was the Black Panther group, is referenced in the motion filed this morning that their specific objective uh, was to influence the proceedings in this case. Large weapons, apparently automatic weapons, uh, were seen outside uh, the courthouse. Uh, and, you know, given everything else that's already transpired in this case, we believe at this point that it's appropriate for us to renew the motion for mistrial. Actually, the open coffin with a figure inside carries the names of Emmett Till, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other black people who were killed, not the three men on trial. It's also the new Black Panther Party, not the Black Panther Party. And Malik Shabazz, the attorney general of the party, appears at the courthouse steps. He holds up a large placard. Ahmad's graduation photo is prominently displayed in the middle. On the top and bottom rows of the placard are photos of Travis, Greg, and Roddy, the bottom with them in their orange jail jumpsuit. This court has gone to great lengths to give these defendants a fair trial. the security precautions that were in place, despite the sheriff's best efforts and your honor's best efforts, <laughs> we've now got people claiming to be violent driving around the courthouse with coffins with our clients' names on them with semi or fully automatic weapons. 
I mean, I'm not sure. This is no longer a figurative mob. This is a literal mob. Uh, and inevitably, the proceedings, uh, despite best efforts retained, we, we would move for a mistrial. Of course, Goff himself has brought much of this spectacle upon the trial. Walmsley then asks the other defense attorneys for their thoughts on what's going on. Here's Greg's lawyer, Frank Hope. Our our position, again, is if the jury has been exposed to it, yes, we would be gravely concerned, and we would need them to let the court know that they've seen it and it's had any influence on them. Short of that, if, if it's... If it's folks exercising their First Amendment rights outside and our jury is unaware of it, then we're okay. Travis's lawyer, Bob Rubin, agrees. And I must say, you've got to really be wondering what the jury has seen and heard. Last week, we had hundreds of members of black clergy outside the courthouse. Now we have a new demonstration with marches around the courthouse and loud chanting. Here's Wamsley. Yeah, the court's again denying the mistrial. I've indicated um, previously um, and mentioned to counsel that uh, I, I agree with the concern that is out there uh, I, with regard to the jurors having uh, exposure to anything that may be going on outside. I, not I, whatever may be going on outside. I have, it has not been brought to my attention on a security level. Um, again, individuals have a right to be outside the courthouse. I agree with Mr. Hogue that um, the court needs to keep a very close eye on uh, whether or not whatever may be going on outside the courthouse has any influence upon the jury, and the court has taken steps to ensure that the jury is insulated from uh, anything going on around the courthouse so that they can focus on their business before the court, which would be to uh, consider the evidence presented as well as the arguments of counsel. The jury room is next to an exterior wall, so later Walmsley decides to move them to a more insulated room further inside the courthouse. It's now Goff's turn to give his closing. He starts off seeming to shift blame to his two co-defendants. When did Roddy Bryan know the McMichaels brought guns? When did Roddy Bryan know Travis McMichael would shoot Mr. Arbery? And at that point, what could Roddy Bryan have done to stop it. The inconvenient truth is that Roddy Bryan did not know and could not know that these men were armed until moments before Mr. Arbery's tragic death. He did not know and could not know that Arbery would be shot. And by that time, sadly, there was nothing Roddy Bryan could do to prevent this tragedy. Roddy Bryan didn't shoot anyone. At the time of the shooting, he was some distance back. He was armed only with his cell phone. Goff just gave his opening statement a few days ago, and repeats quite a bit of what he told the jury, like Roddy completely cooperating with the investigation. And in his own peculiar way, Goff describes his client to the jury. Who is Roddy Bryan? Roddy never served his country like Travis McMichael. Roddy never served his community like Greg McMichael. Roddy is a quiet man. Roddy repairs small engines at the local hardware store. Roddy knows most of the English language, or so he believes. Roddy Bryan keeps to himself. His neighbors don't really even know who he is, even though he's lived in the neighborhood for three years. Roddy is not boastful or a braggart. He is not loud or boisterous. 
He is not an attention seeker. Roddy tries to avoid bad language, not always successfully. Roddy is respectful. He's an ordinary guy, a regular guy. Roddy Bryan is no vigilante. What else does the evidence tell us about Roddy Bryan? Is Roddy Bryan the smartest guy in the room? Is he like some kind of rocket scientist? In these interviews that Mr. Bryan gives to the police, is there some clever wordplay like Mr. Bryan is smarter than everybody else? Is that what the evidence suggests in this case? The evidence suggests that Roddy Bryan legitimately struggles to find the right words, that Roddy struggles at times to convey the meaning, the truth behind those words. There is no evidence that he is a wordsmith, no evidence that Roddy was playing word games with law enforcement officers. He simply can't find the right words. He says if Roddy wanted to run Ahmad down on the road, he could have done so. And Goff tells the jury why Roddy took the video. He was worried Ahmad would get away, so he wanted to be able to show police who this was. And he hammers home this about the cell phone video. He only got one. But fortunately, he got the one that you need to figure out what justice is in this case. And again, it's not for Roddy Bryan, it's not for me to say what justice is here between the McMichaels and Mr. Arbery and his family. That's not our call, that's your call. But again, but for Mr. Bryan, whether you call it serendipity, luck, coincidence, or the hand of God here, not once, but twice, as someone who keeps to themselves, who never gets involved in anybody else's business, who is almost a stranger in his own neighborhood, has now gone out and gotten a video, which is the best evidence for you to look at in trying to figure out what happened here. Once again, Goff seems to shift the blame on Greg and Travis. When we look objectively at the events of February 23rd, I would respectfully submit to you that Roddy Bryan's presence is absolutely superfluous and irrelevant to the tragic death of Ahmaud Arbery. Now that may not be intuitively obvious, but if you think about it, I believe you'll agree. Had Roddy Bryan stayed in bed that day, if Roddy Bryan had stayed on his front porch, would Ahmaud Arbery be alive today? If the state's theory is that these men, and I'm not saying that's the case, you decide what, what the deal is with the co-defendants, but if the theory is that these men were vigilantes and harbored some ill will towards Mr. Arbery, then what difference does it make whether Roddy Bryan is there or not? Mr. Arbery can't outrun bullets. They've been chasing him for, for a while, and he's at practically point-blank range even before he comes around the truck. Goff later tells the jury, when I go home tonight, I'll be sleeping soundly for the first time in a long while because my work will be done. Except when he says that, while being live-streamed nationwide, he gives out his own personal address. I didn't see that coming. With Goff, anything's possible. That's also true. He ends his closing this way. Again, I'm going to posit these three questions to you. When did Roddy Bryan know the McMichaels brought guns? When did Roddy Bryan know Travis McMichael would shoot Mr. Arbery? And at that point, what could Roddy Bryan possibly have done to stop it? 
Mr. Bryan put his faith in the Glenn County Police Department. And then he put his faith in the GBI. He put his trust in law enforcement. He put his trust in our government to do the right thing by him. His trust was not rewarded, and now he finds himself before you. We place Roddy Bryan's fate in your hands. We ask you to return a verdict of not guilty on all counts. I ask you to send Roddy Bryan home. Thank you. Well, actually, Roddy would not be going home no matter the outcome. He, Greg, and Travis are awaiting trial set for February on federal hate crimes charges. They were not granted bond in that case either. Now it's time for Donikoski to get the last word. Since Goff wrapped up around 5 p.m., the judge asks the jurors if they want to stay for the prosecution's rebuttal. They choose to go home. After court adjourns, Ahmad's parents and their lawyers have something to say about the closing arguments and the demonstrations going on outside the courthouse that day. Here's Wanda Cooper-Jones. She described Ahmad's as his long legs and his dirty, long toenails. That was just a beyond rude. Regardless of what kind of toenails he had, what size legs he had, that was still, still my son. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump condemns what he characterizes as victim blaming. If you didn't know any better, you would think that Ahmaud Aubrey was the one being charged. He was the person who was killed running for his life. And they're saying that he is the person that is on trial here. Let it be clear, the people on trial are the McMichaels, the father and son, and Rowdy Bryant. But this isn't anything new to us. We know about 10 years ago, with Trayvon Martin, they assassinated his character after they assassinated him. It's the playbook. Attorney Lee Merritt says the Aubrey family greatly appreciates all the people who've gathered at the courthouse to show their support. But he also asked the crowd, don't go too far. As we come near the end of the trial, those demonstrations have become uh, somewhat more bombastic um, with uh, props and marches and other things. We, we just ask the community of supporters, as we near the end of the trial, uh, to try to do whatever you can to avoid interfering with uh, the actual trial taking place inside of the courtroom. We, we appreciate the support. Uh, the community's presence here has been a great encouragement to the family, uh, but we cannot allow anything to disrupt justice in this case. Ahmad's father, Marcus Aubrey Sr., makes a similar plea. All we want is justice. Justice for Ahmad. Thank you all so much. And we're going to try to keep this thing non-violent because that's what they want. We can't get on their level. We want justice. We're going to get justice the honest way. So Donikoski gets all night to prepare. She seems to make the most of it because she closes with a flourish. She really does. And she starts out by telling jurors the defense's claims just don't hold water. If you find they didn't commit a citizen's arrest, that's not what they were doing. Under the law, they didn't meet the criteria. Okay, and I want to remind you guys, ignorance of the law is no excuse. It's not like, well, they were probably mistaken. Uh Uh-uh, you can't be mistaken about the law. If you're going to take the law into your own hands, you better know what the law is. So if you find they were not 
doing a citizen's arrest under the legal standard, okay, the judge is going to give you, well then, it takes it out of self-defense for the homicide, and that means they're guilty on all the charges. It's as simple as that. Dunikowski says Ahmad was within his rights not to stop and comply with the McMichaels demands. The state's not saying they left the house to go murder Ahmad Arbery. What happened? They left the house to go investigate, right? Stop, we want to talk to you. Where are you coming from? What did you do? What's going on, right? And then what happened? Mr. Arbery ignored them, okay? He took off running. He wouldn't do what they were commanding him to do. He wasn't obeying their orders. Why? Well, under the Constitution of the United States, he didn't have to do anything except walk away. In this case, he ran away. And they chased him. She then takes direct aim at Roddy. So but for his actions, would Ahmad still be alive? If he had not helped to stop Ahmad with his Silverado, would Ahmad still be alive? The answer is, yes, he would have been. That's all you got to think about is, well, what did he do to contribute to help the Midlanders? <coughs> the answer is yes. Mr. Bryan played a substantial and necessary part in causing his death. He is responsible for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Donikowski also says this. They started it. They do not get to claim self-defense. And then, of course, provocation. You can't force someone to defend themselves against you, so you get to claim self-defense. This isn't the Wild West. Donikowski reminds the jury that Travis had testified that he was standing at the corner of his driveway when he saw neighbor Matt Albinzi pointing down the road in Ahmad's direction. Travis McMichael testified that he went to the end of the driveway and he saw Mr. Albenze point one time down the street. There was no verbal communication by Mr. Albenze with the McMichaels. That was a lie. Donikowski then plays a surveillance video to the jury. It shows Travis's pickup was already pulling out of his driveway when Albenze lifted his arm and pointed in Ahmad's direction. Travis is not standing at the end of his driveway. Danikoski takes time going through the videos of Ahmad on Larry English's property. Videos that show him just wandering around, not taking anything. And there's the incident at the English home on February the 11th. Even though Travis sees Ahmad there, the security video again shows he doesn't take anything. And then there's what Officer Rash tells Greg and Travis at the scene. Danikoski plays that for the jury. But, um, yeah, nobody seems to know who this kid is, where he's coming from. But, like, he's always, all the times on the video that Mr. English has sent me, he's sending me one now, it's always been just in there plundering around. He hasn't seen him actually take anything. That seemed extremely important. It happened just 12 days before Ahmad was chased down and killed. Because it's what's in Greg's and Travis's minds. How are they supposed to form reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that a felony had been committed after hearing that? There's also what Greg told investigators hours after the killing. This seemed incredibly damning. This is why Greg McMichael is guilty. Did this guy break into a house today? That's just it. I don't know. That's what I told what's her name out there. I said, listen, you might want to go knock on doors down there because this guy just done something because he was fleeing from. I don't know. He might have gone in somebody's house. You can't make a citizen's arrest because someone's running down the street and you have no idea what crime they have committed that day. You can't hold somebody so the police can show up to go, well, he must have done something. Why don't you police officers go figure out what it was that he went and did today? 
But that's what Greg McMichael told the police. Donikowski reminds the jury if it hadn't been for Greg, none of this would have happened. So she doubles down on him. Greg McMichael. Yeah, he was trapped like a rat. Knowledge, intent, that they had committed false imprisonment on Holmes Drive. Right there. Greg McMichael, guilty of all charges. Why? What's your emergency? I'm out here in Satilla Shores, and there's a black man running down the street. Yeah, this is what we get. This is what we get. Driveway decisions and assumptions. Right here. Donikowski also tells the jury, don't buy into the defense's narrative that this was all Ahmad's fault. It's the victim's fault. Standard, standard stuff. Malign the victim. It's the victim's fault. I know you're not going to buy into that. It's offensive. She tells the jury the case isn't about whether Travis, Greg, and Roddy are good people or bad people. It's about responsibility and holding them accountable for their actions. Nobody gets a free pass, okay? Would you get a free pass? Who gets a free pass? No, the law basically says if you commit the crime, you're going to be held responsible. And ladies and gentlemen, when you come back with a guilty verdict on all the charges, this isn't saying somebody's a good person or bad person. What you're saying is, you know you committed the crime. Now we know you committed the crime too. That's all it is. Donikowski then shows the jurors two photos. One is of Ahmad when he was alive. The other, after he was killed. They know what they did. It's not like they don't know what they did. They know exactly what they did and they know why they did it. It's not a mystery to them. When you come back with your guilty verdict, all you're doing is telling them, we know what you did too. And we're gonna hold you responsible for it. Because guess what you did? You turned this young man into that young man. That's what you did. For absolutely no good reason at all. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm asking you to find all three defendants guilty of all the charges in the indictment. Thank you very much. The defendants then are ordered to remain in the custody of the sheriff, and we are adjourned. Thank you. After the verdict, Laura Hogue tries to console Greg's wife, Lee. Lee's face is covered with tears. The lawyers for all three men say they will appeal. I spoke to Jason Sheffield as he and Bob Rubin drove to talk to Travis at the jail. Sheffield says he's at a crossroads. He said... He's completely devastated by the jury's interpretation of the evidence. He calls Travis a good man who thought he was doing the right thing for himself and for his neighbors. Sheffield also says he recognizes the joy and relief the Arbery family experienced when the jury finally determined what happened to Ahmad was wrong. That's quite a statement. It was. Outside the courthouse, there is raw jubilation. Demonstrators embrace one another. 
People are crying. They're chanting. Walking together, holding hands, raising them up to the sky. When Donikowski finally emerges and gets introduced, she receives a hero's welcome. Danikowski thanks her trial partners and thanks Ahmad's parents for the faith and trust they placed in her team. And the verdict today was a verdict based on the facts. Yes. Based on the evidence. Yes. And that was our goal, was to bring that to that jury so that they could do the right thing. Because the jury system works in this country. And when you present the truth to people and they can see it, they will do the right thing. And that's what this jury did today in getting justice for Ahmad Arbery. Thank you. Civil rights leader, the Reverend Al Sharpton, the pastor Goff wanted out of the courtroom, also addresses the crowd. Let us, more than anything, thank the mother and father. Yes, 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 yes. They lost a son, but their son will go down in history as one that proved that if you hold on, that justice can come. And let the word go forth all over the world that a jury of 11 whites and one black in the deep south stood up in the courtroom and said that black lives do matter. Civil rights lawyer Ben Crump also addresses the crowd. He says Wanda and Marcus set an example of how to deal with the tragedy and grief accompanying the death of a child. He also says that what happened today wouldn't have happened without such widespread support. He clasps the hands of Ahmad's parents and lifts them up high. We all together, black, white, activists, faith members, lawyers, prosecutors, we did this together. We said, America, we will make us better than what we saw in that video. And I would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge, even though we are clapping and we are cheering and we applaud. Wanda and Marcus still are devastated yes. because they're missing a mind. Yes. That's right. That's devastated. That's right. That's and right. so, even though this is not a celebration, no. it is a reflection right. to acknowledge that the spirit of a mind. Yes defeated the lynch mob. The spirit of a mob defeated the lynch mob. The spirit of a mob defeated the lynch mob. We'll give Wanda Cooper-Jones the final word. Remember, she found out about Ahmad's death on a phone call from a police investigator. He told her her son, while he was committing a burglary, was confronted by the homeowner and killed. That's the lead investigator who never bothered to come by and see her, the one who never brought charges. But Wanda never backed down. She kept pressing, pressing, pressing. She kept the justice for Ahmad movement going. She kept prodding the authorities, even though they did nothing, week after week after week. So, here she is, 
It's November 24th, 2021, almost 22 months to the day her son was killed. I just want to say thank you guys. Thank you. Thank each and every one of you who fought this fight with us. It's been a long fight. It's been a hard fight, but God is good. Yes, he is. Early in, I never saw, I to tell you the truth, I never saw this day back in 2020. Mm-hmm. I never thought this day would come, but God is good. Yes, he is. And I just want to tell everybody, thank you, thank you for those who marched, those who, who prayed, most of all, the, the ones who prayed. Yes, Lord. Thank yes. you, God. Yes, Lord. Thank you. And now, now, Quez, which I, which you know him as Ahmad, I know him as Quez. Yes. He will now rest in peace. Yes. Hey, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening. This was quite an experience, quite a trial. Judge Walmsley said he will set a sentencing date for Travis, Greg, and Roddy in the coming weeks. As I'm sure you noticed, our colleague Asia Simone Burns could not be with us for this episode, but she'll be back. I'm certainly thankful for all her hard work on our previous episodes. Asia rocks. Absolutely, she does. I hope you are following our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, especially our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC newspaper or AJC.com. Be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated, please, please do so. I'm going to keep asking you this every episode because it's for all of us. And get that booster too. I got mine. And I got mine. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Shadi Abu Saeed. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett and Jay Black. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns and Jay Black. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, and Zach McGee. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown.